Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. All right, how many of you guys, how many ladies, you need to take some time and just have some time to refresh? Anybody? That just sounds so good, right? And so what you need to do, you, you, as I said, you don't ever drift into rest. You don't ever drift into right thinking. You, don't ever, you have to be intentional about it. And so take your phones right now. I give you permission to pull them out and to jump on there and to register for this event, journeykc.com slash the 411. Sign up your friend, sign up your mom, sign up your whoever. I mean, just sign them up, check into Facebook while you're there. Uh, if you don't do it now, you won't do it, all right? So uh, we want to see that jump up before the end of the day and see a bunch of you guys signed up. We've got a, we're working on an idea for a special video for next week. It's going to be good, too. So be looking forward to that. Uh, today I'm going to pray while you're doing that, and then we're going to get into uh, wrapping up Refuel here today. So, Lord, we, we, just, we just thank you for the move of your Spirit upon our lives. We walk in expectation that you are moving in our lives. It's not just, uh, it's not just a one-and-done thing, but you are constantly active. Lord, we invite that activity into our heart today, into our spirit today, into our soul today, so that we might be refueled, that we might be able to honor you through our life and through our, uh, our relationships. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys would like to be more like Jesus? Anybody? Like to be more like Jesus? I mean, every day, I, like, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to look more like Jesus. How many, let me just see you guys. How many of you guys would like to be more like Jesus? How many of you guys would like to be mocked, spat upon, lied about, falsely accused, betrayed? Anybody, how many of you guys still, you got your hands up? I'm just making sure because uh, I think a lot of times when we say we want to be more like Jesus, sometimes we don't take it all in. And uh, today is what on the Christian calendar is called Palm Sunday. And Jesus, what Palm Sunday means, it's, it's the week leading up to Easter towards the crucifixion. And so uh, Jesus came into town riding on a donkey. And as he was riding into town, people would take their coats off and lay them down and take palm branches and lay them down on the road because a palm branch, it was called Palm Sunday, because a palm branch in ancient times was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of goodness and victory. Uh, palm branches made their way onto coins and significant buildings as a sign and symbol of victory. Solomon had uh, palm branches even carved into the temple and on the doors of the temple. And later, the palm branch became a symbol of the martyrs, as the, uh, a symbol of their victory, ultimately, over death. Okay? And so uh, this was a big sign of victory. And so Jesus came into town the week of Palm Sunday, and he came to shouts of Hosanna and palm branches, and he entered, ended the week with whispers of betrayal. Now, a lot of us, we love to follow Jesus uh, on the good days. But how many of you guys know that sometimes they, aren't, they don't always look the same, do they? Sometimes the days kind of, they change from time to time, and we get discouraged when they do. And so I want to look today at what it looks like for us to refuel after a betrayal. Now, every single person here has experienced some sort of relational turmoil in their life. And what do we do? How do we handle that? There's the world's way of handling that, and then there's God's way. So let's look at the story that happened to Jesus. You know, Jesus, he's coming into that week, and he goes to what's called the Last Supper. And as he's sitting down with these guys, these 12 men in a room who he's just done life with for the last three years of his life, he's called them one by one to follow them. They've, they've walked on, I mean, so many countless miles. I've seen miracles together. They've, they've lived life together. They're, they're like a brotherhood. 
And Jesus sits down at this meal with, with what would be this tight-knit group. And as he sits down, he says, one of you guys will betray me. And I can just imagine sitting, because, you know, we have a ministry team uh, here at the church, and we just actually had, shared a meal together, uh, I believe it was earlier this week. And I, I just can't imagine sitting down at that meal together, and we're all, I mean, we're all in it together. We're all doing this. And then, then to just to know one of you, after all of this, will do something that, that will go against the opposite of everything that we've been building here. And that's what Jesus faced as the Son of God. And so as they're going into that, in John chapter 13, verse 25 So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, he said, it is him to whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped it, dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan quickly entered into him. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him to go buy what they need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Think about Judas betraying Jesus. I mean, every time somebody betrays somebody, usually there's a, there's a reason that makes it look like they're doing a good thing. And that's the case for Judas. I mean, it looked like to everybody else, they thought he's doing something noble. He's doing something noble. But Satan had entered him and betrayed. Now, how many of you guys know that if Jesus was betrayed, we're probably going to be betrayed sometime too if we're following Jesus? It's true. And so uh, betraying is not a, a fun process. How many of you guys would just be honest enough to admit that you've had a friend, a family member, a spouse, something in your life that you would have called some sort of betrayal in your life? Would you just lift up your hands boldly and bravely and say, yeah, I felt the sting of betrayal. Betrayal is kind of like an insult to injury. So uh, I was running this, this past week, and, and Becca and I were out running, and I'm just you know, doing my, my jog thing, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this bug flies right into my eye. <laughs> And it lodges itself in between my eyelid and my eyeball right in the middle of my eye. And I'm like just on the side of the road. I just cannot. I'm trying to figure out what to do and trying to get this thing out. And and I I cannot get it out. It's an enormous amount of pain. And while I'm trying to work this bug out of my eye, it begins to repeatedly sting the surface of my eyeball. So finally, piece by piece, I get this bug out. And I'm sitting there on the side of the road thinking, what in the world just happened to me? Like, what happened to me? I'm sitting there trying to recover, so Becca passes me, which was discouraging too. I'm saying, what? I did not deserve that at all. I did not deserve that. I didn't ask for that, and it stung really, really bad. And I thought, man, because it's just on my brain. I'm like, this is what it feels like. This, it's like, what did I do to deserve that? This is stinging, and repeatedly, unnecessarily stinging. And that's what it's like. I have a pastor friend of mine who I talked to a, a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me, I was just texting back and forth with him. He lives in another state, uh, and he, we were just talking back and forth, and he was telling me how things were going. He said, well, things actually, uh, 2016 was the worst year of my life. And I was like, wow, what, what's going on, dude? And he said uh, that, yeah, I mean, everything was going well at the beginning, but then he had some issue with his nose. They had to do some surgery on it. In the process of this surgery, they screwed something up with his shoulder somehow. And so he was down recovering for, for weeks. And while he was down recovering, there were some guys on his staff that uh, had this opportunity from a guy in their church to make a ton of money on his side business thing. And, but the problem was the guy who they were wanting to work with had the worst reputation in the whole city. 
And so he says, no, you cannot be a staff member of this church and then go and try to make a bunch of money with this guy who has a horrible reputation. And so there he is in bed recovering from this horrible thing that happened to him. And while he's recovering from it, they quit the church. They, they had been with him for years and years and years, and they quit the church to go after the money. They, went, they quit the church, went after the money, told every lie in the book about him, falsely accused him, took a few hundred people with them away from the church. The numbers were down. He said, it was the worst year of my life. Now, that's horrible, isn't it? Every single one of us can feel some sort of pain like that. It may not be the right, may not be the same circumstances, but we've all felt something. So the question is, when you hit an injustice, when something has come your way that seems to sting you for no reason, which seems you didn't deserve it and, and, you, and it just came out of nowhere, what do you do? What do you do? If Jesus was betrayed, we probably will be too. Now, here's the thing about betrayal. How we handle betrayal, listen to this, how we handle betrayal will separate who we are from who we say we are. This is key. How we handle relationships, betrayal, will separate who we are from who we say we are. If there's an, a, a difference, <laughs> it will become evident in this process. You know, sometimes uh, things happen in our life, and I don't say that God causes these things, but God sure will use them as a sifting process in our life. And he will, he will have certain things be uh, evident in our lives for the purpose of separating who we are from who we say we are. Because how many of you guys are really good talkers? Man, we can talk a great game, can't we? And we can tell, I mean, we can act like we really are a follower of Jesus. We can act like we really love people. But the truth is, we only love people when it's convenient for us or when we're getting something out of it. And so it separates who we are from who we say we are. And, and that's what sometimes this sting does. Now, in the Bible, there's several examples of this, but David is the one that came to mind as I was studying this week because David was betrayed. Not once, he was betrayed multiple times, but the, what I'm about ready to read to you is, is one of the, probably the most challenging uh, for somebody to go through, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 14, and I'm going to look at verse uh, 25 and 26. So if you have your, your phone out or if you have your Bible or something, go ahead and take a note or something. Uh, here it is. It it's, has to do with his son. Now, you can have a lot of betrayals in your life, but especially when it's family or somebody very close to you, it makes it very, very difficult. And so here's the story of David and his son. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. That's David's son. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. How do you guys know that's pretty good? <laughs> I mean, you got it going on. If you are the, the best-looking person in all the land, there's not even one blemish on you. And listen to this. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. I'm just guessing they're selling his hair. You know, it's like, hey, this is Absalom's hair, you know. And, and, it's, and it, it was worth something. So this guy was David's son. And David, I'm sure, was very proud of his son. Because, I mean, David, I mean, he had a lot going for him. Absalom was like this, this picture-perfect, perfect son. But the problem was things started to drift. Relationships started to get strained. And if you skip over to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here's what began to happen. People began to grumble and complain about Absalom's father, David. 
And so David would stand outside of the gate of the king's palace. And as the people were getting ready to come to to talk to David and to, to lodge their complaints, Absalom would stand outside of the gate and he would listen to their complaints. And as they would tell them, then Absalom would, instead of rebuking them or correcting them or telling them the the other side of the story, Absalom would soak it all in and say, you're right, you're right, you're right. And he stood there at the gate year after year until all the people's heart went with Absalom over David. It says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Now listen to David's response, Go in peace, even though David knew something was up. He said, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messages throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom, Absalom is king in Hebron. It's the ultimate betrayal that happened by his own son. If you look at Psalms chapter 3, this psalm is a psalm that David wrote while he was going through this trial with his son. And listen to the first two verses. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You know, it's so horrible that people are saying, David's so bad, even God can't save him. That's what he's saying here. You guys know that things have drifted down pretty bad. Absalom stole the hearts away of the kingdom from David, and it was an ultimate betrayal. David made a lot of mistakes in his life. We know that, but there was one area that he had learned to do right, and it was this this area of betrayal and how to handle it, because this wasn't the first time it happened. How do you guys know, if you rewind the tape, when David was just a shepherd boy, he's out in the field, He's, uh, he's playing his harp out in the field, right? And, and he's watching the sheep and, and then the, the lion and the bear and all that sort of thing. But, but he hears about something uh, happening in, in uh, the war. And he hears about this battle going on. Meanwhile, Saul has kind of turned away from God. Samuel the prophet comes in and he knows that Saul is not going to be the future of Israel. And so he finds David. They have to bring him out of the field. They anoint him. Samuel anoints him. Samuel's anointed. David's now anointed as king, even though he's just a teenage boy. And he hears about the battle going on. He shows up at the battle and everybody's scared to fight the giant, but David steps up to the plate. We know the story. David steps up to the plate. He saves Israel. He saves Saul's bacon. He, you know, he, he helps get Saul out of this major jam. Saul from time to time would be tormented by spirits because he was going mad, really. And he would bring in David because David was so skillful on the harp and he could sing really well. He wasn't an American Idol contestant, by the way. And so he could sing really, really well. And he came in there and as soon as David would sing, the spirits would be calmed in Saul. And so he really loved David. Now, the turning point begins to happen because as soon as David kills the giant, all of a sudden he became a threat. And all of a sudden people started singing about David over Saul. And so Saul began to begin get jealous. And Saul begins to seek to kill David from there on out and betrays him at every single turn. And so I want to look at some things we can look, uh, learn from David's life. Number one, uh, if we want to deal with this issue of betrayal, be good at dodgeball, not spear throwing. Be good at dodgeball. Some of you are like, really? We'll, we'll fill in the gaps here. Be good at dodgeball, not spear throwing. So here it is, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. Uh, as, they were retur- as they were coming home, 
When David returned from striking down the Philistines, so David has just killed Goliath. Listen to this. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs and joy and musical instruments. So Saul's coming out. He's like, yes, all the women are coming and flocking and singing about, you know, just tambourines and all this big party, right? And the women sang to one another. And as they celebrated, they sang this, Saul has struck down his thousands. And so Saul's eating all this up. And then it, then it says, and David, his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and they have ascribed only thousands to me. And what more can he have but to the kingdom? And and Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit came from God and rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So here, Saul, the guy who before loved everything about David, the guy who before loved it when David would play and sing, the guy who before uh, raved about David, now all of a sudden there was a threat, and so he's now throwing spears. It's like, how many of you guys were in uh, school and you played dodgeball in, in school, right? And so, I mean, I, I remember when I was in school, we played, the sixth graders would play the eighth graders. How many of you guys know it was so unfair for the eighth graders to form their own team against the sixth graders? But if I was an eighth grader, I would probably do the same thing because you could just see these little skinny kids and you could just throw the ball at them and knock them down and stuff. It's great for them, but it's not great when you're a sixth grader. And I remember being the sixth grader and having the eighth graders throw dodgeballs at me. And I got really good at dodging dodgeballs, okay? Because they would throw them in there. I mean, they'd have heat on it. I mean, these things were probably like a 97-mile-per-hour fast dodgeball coming at you. And, you know, as a little skinny kid, you got really good at dodging them, right? And so David is doing the exact same thing. He's in the palace. He's a skinny little kid. And, and so here comes Saul throwing spears at him. And so he's like dodging them, you know, you know, he's dodging these, these spears coming at him. I'm just getting the picture. It's just hilarious. And, and so what's interesting to me is that instead of retaliating and throwing a spear back as you're getting attacked, David just continued to dodge. How many of you guys, after one, I would be gone. <laughs> but he didn't, here's what most of us would do, <laughs> you know. All right, we want to play this game. You know, that's what, that's what we would be doing. I wouldn't stick around for more than once, but he was great at dodgeball instead of spear throwing. And, and so David's response to the betrayal, listen to this. This is going to be a big earth-shattering revelation of what to do when you are betrayed. Are you ready for this? David's response to being betrayed was doing nothing. He did nothing. He didn't throw back a spear. Isn't the most, ten, the, the, and when we feel like in a, a situation like this, when we feel betrayed and we get spears thrown at us, whether they be through words, through looks, through whatever it is, through conversation, whatever it is, what do we want to do? We want to even the score, don't we? And so we would take a spear and we'd start throwing it back. David did nothing. He could, he did nothing. Later on when Absalom betrayed him, what we started off with, David did nothing. David could have crushed Absalom, but he did nothing. One of the hardest things is to do nothing because we like to even the score. How many of you guys, if you have somebody talking bad about you, you want to say something back, right? 
You want to say, it's just me? It's just me. Okay. Just me. I want, I want to set the record straight. One of the worst things, so how many of you guys would just consider yourself talkers? Okay, you're just, you talk all the time. Okay, me and Jake, is that it? Seriously? Bob, I know you are. Uh, I, I, we are. And so for me, one of the worst things as a talker, okay, as a talker, one of the worst things is when I lose my voice. I feel trapped inside of my own head, okay? I mean, because how I express myself and how I live is by communicating. If I can't communicate, if my arms are tied or if I have no voice, I mean, I feel trapped inside of myself. That's why it's so hard when you feel, when you have the spears coming at you, because we feel trapped if we don't do something about it. And so we, one of the hardest things, but one of the, the easiest things at the same time is doing nothing. It's just not retaliating because we love to throw back the spears. Another way to look at this or, or to put this is simply this, give grace. When someone betrays you, when someone throws a spear at you, when somebody does something that you said, I didn't deserve that, give grace. And here's why. Because sometimes who is right is clear. And sometimes you just think it's clear. Sometimes who is right in the situation is very clear. But sometimes you just think it's clear. Give grace. I can tell you I've been on situ- in situations before where I thought I knew I was right. I knew it because it was so clear. So clear. But sometimes you think it's, it, who is right is clear, and sometimes you just think it's clear. I, I've shared this before, but... I love this, um, this story this guy told about he was in seminary and he had a, a, one of his teachers standing up to give a, a class, a lesson to the class about theology. And he stood up to, in front of all these students, these Bible st- uh, students, and he said this. He said, 20% of what I'm going to tell you today is wrong. And they're all like, 20% of what you're going to tell me today is wrong. He said, 20% of what I'm going to tell you today about the Bible and about theology is wrong. He said, the problem is, I don't know which 20% it is. Because sometimes we think we're right. Like, how many of you guys, you think you got it all right. You got God all figured out. You got the Bible all figured out. You know, but the reality is, 20% is wrong in there, and we don't know where it is. We don't know exactly where it's at, but we know that it's 20%. And so I started to think about that in the area of my relationships. I started to think back over situations in my life, different hard circumstances where I would analyze. How many of you guys have situations in your life that you keep replaying over and over again, and you're having those conversations in your head, you're going back and forth of, okay, well, did I do everything right? Did I say everything right? Did I? And so I would go back over those situations time and time again. And, and there were certain situations that I would go over in my head. And I'm like, I cannot find anything I did wrong. And I didn't mean that arrogantly. It's just I analyzed it, and I could not see it. I feel like if I had it to do over again, I would do it exactly right, exactly the same way I did it before. I'd use the same words. I'd have the same conversation. How do you guys have a situation like that, that in your mind, that it's just me again? Okay, wow, uh, just me. All right. That in my mind, I can't find where I did anything wrong. And then I started to remember I guarantee you I had 20% off there somewhere. I just don't know which 20% it is. I don't know whether it was in this thought or that conversation or that action, but I'm going to assume that I was 20% of what I did, even though I thought I did 100% right, that 20% is off somewhere. And then I started to think about other people 
in the places, in, in different conversations and relationships where I felt hurt or I felt like it wasn't right. And I thought, man, maybe they were in their 20% in that moment. And they thought they were 100% right, but it was their 20%. You know what it did for me? It helped me give grace a whole lot more. You know what? I may be in my 20% right now. I don't know. They may be in their 20% right now. I don't know. Give grace. Yeah, give grace. You know that what goes on inside a person emotionally will affect physically. We talked about that last week. It's documented that people who are resentful and bitter are sick more often than those who are not. Uh, a famed psychologist or psychiatrist rather once said that if he, convince, he, if he could convince patients in their mental hospitals that their sins were forgiving them, forgiven them, that 75% of them could walk out the next day. That's how much offense and when we hang on to betrayal instead of simply not throwing back the spear, instead of simply giving grace, instead of simply assuming that maybe I'm in my 20% right now or maybe they're in their 20% and let's just give grace. Grace is needed in relationships. So be good at dodgeball, not uh, spear throwing. Number two, be good at cutting, not stabbing. Good at cutting, not stabbing. So David grows up a little bit. Saul is still hunting after David, but he's ran David out into the caves and David's off hiding, and Saul is beginning to try to extinguish him from the planet because he doesn't want to have any chance that David's going to succeed. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 2 says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to David to seek him. So 3,000 men, and they went to, in front of the wild goat's rocks. We need to name something that. That's just cool. All right. And he came to, to the sheepfolds along the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's translation Greek. He went to use the bathroom. Okay. Now, David, that's actually be Hebrew. Um, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So David's already there because they're hiding. And by chance, by luck, as luck would have it, uh, Saul, King Saul comes in and doesn't even know that they're there. And it's like, man, Saul has been attacking you. He's hunting you down with 3,000 men, but here he is by himself. This is your chance. This is your chance to take him out. And David and his men were sitting there, and the men of David said to that, that to him, they said, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David rose, and he sneaks up, and he stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David heart, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with, the, men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David had the chance to kill Saul and to end it right there. And I think if, if most of us were in that situation and we were being hunted day after day after day after day wrongfully, we would take our opportunity to end the situation right there. If you are in a betrayal situation and somebody sets the plate for you to set the record straight and to, to fix it all, how many of us would take that situation right then and say, yeah, I'm going to knock it out right now. I'm going to stop this right now. I'm going to end it right now. But David didn't because he assumed that maybe there was a 20%. He even calls him the Lord's anointed. Even though in one sense the anointing had fell off of him, David still treated him as if he was the Lord's anointed, even when he wasn't acting like the Lord's anointed. The question is, do we do that to other people in our life? Do we treat them like a child of God, even when they're not acting like a child of God? Do we treat them like a brother or sister in Christ, even when they're not maybe acting like a brother or sister in Christ? Do we treat them that way? See, that's what David had the honor about him to do. And instead of stabbing him in the back, which he could have done, 
He simply cuts off a piece of his robe as, a, as an illustration to say, I could have done that, but I respect God and his plan and his purpose and our relationship way too much to be able to do that. I could have cut it off, but I choose not to. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, listen to this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable, peaceably with all. You say, but they're doing this to me and they're doing this to me. Listen, if possible, as far as it depends on you, your job is not to worry about what they are doing. Your job is to act like a believer constantly. You don't get a pass to be ugly to somebody just because they've been ugly to you. It says, as far as, it's po- as possible, live, uh, live in peace with other people. So do the right thing, even if someone is not. Honor, even if they're not honoring. Believe in the best in somebody, even if they're not honorable at that time. Love them. You realize that love can be given without a reciprocation of love? You can still give love. You can still give honor. You can do all of those things, even if no one does that back. So anyone in David's shoes would think that Saul was not the Lord's anointed, but David had the character to treat him that way, even if he wasn't acting that way. Another way to put this is to live in peace. Give grace, live peace. Give grace, live peace. Uh, Matthew says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in in the book of Matthew. And, And here's when I read that verse, I think about this. I think about, how many of you guys know it's hard to pray for your enemies? Just get their face in your mind right now, just for fun. Now think about praying for them. Do you know what the Bible talks about? You know what it means when it says to pray for them? It doesn't mean, Lord, pray for that, that wretch, that sinner, that, I mean, scumbag. You know, Lord, you know, you made them. I mean, you know all about them. It doesn't mean to pray that way and say, Lord, I hope you got enough grace left in the tank to save that one because we all know, you know. And that's not how we are to pray for them. The Bible says when we are to pray for our enemies, what that really means is to pray for them as, if, as we would pray for our own selves. How do you pray for yourself? I mean, we all know we screw up. We're not saying, man, what a, what a scumbag Lord, if you happen to have any grace left, you know, just lightning bolt, if you could just avoid that one, uh, that would be great. No, Man, we, we believe, we trust in God. Man, we, we try to hope for, you know, try to, to believe God. And we need to do that for them as well. And here's another thing. If any part of your success in life is tied to their failure in life, I'm preaching a little bit strong here. If any part of your success is part of their failure, whenever you see them fail, yep, see, I'm justified. Look at that. You're tied to the tormentor, the Bible says, and you'll be tormented. There's no win there. There's no win there. And so reject that wrong thinking. Brian Houston said this. He said, no mature Christian who is seasoned in the word has any defendable excuse for living offended. So the question is, are you a mature Christian? Are you seasoned in the word? And if you say, I am, then it doesn't matter what anyone has done, no matter how bad, that allows you to live offended. Can we see the heart of God in this? Because I'm sure if God, if we were to look at God's perspective and how humanity has treated him, 
And if he went by our rules, everything would be all different, wouldn't it? So here's what I want to challenge you with. Don't focus on how much you've been wronged. Because you could come up with a list of how much you've been wronged. Focus on how much you've been forgiven. Don't focus on how much you've been wronged. Focus on how much you've been forgiven. That seven is the number of things they say that you can have in your short-term memory. Short-term memory, uh, it, it's, it's there. It exists in your mind, in your a section of your brain, not to remember things longer than, say, 10 or 15 minutes. So like my daughter, Lindsay, her, her birthday's today, and, and I was remembering back to, uh, to when she was younger, and she had this famous phrase. Whenever we'd ask her to do something, uh, all of a sudden it wouldn't get done. We'd come up to her and say, what happened? I forgot. It didn't matter if she really forgot it, but it, that was her staple answer. I forgot. I forgot. I remember one time we were playing one of those match games with the cards, and you could lay them all out. And so I'm playing with this card game with my, I don't know, four-year-old, five-year-old, whatever it is. And so I'm winning. <laughs> You know, and sometimes it's hard not to win. Um, but I'm winning, and all of a sudden, she didn't like it anymore. She didn't like this match game because she wasn't winning anything, and so we had, had to end up turning all the cards over and match them that way. You know, that's how we, we played that game. So short-term memory. So she's like, you know, like five years old at the time, and I forgot because it was a short-term memory thing, only five to ten minutes. Google, on the other hand, remembers things forever, Right? So, I mean, your search history, it's permanent record. Uh, the, your emails get scanned so that we can have advertisements that, that are, are uh, tailored just for you. Web history, every app ever, everything, uh, a picture of your house on the Internet for everyone to see uh, for all time. Is anybody scared of that yet? I mean, Big Brother coming in. And so uh, forever, it's a permanent record, permanent record. Once it's online, it's a permanent record. So here, here's what I want to challenge you with. We need to have a short-term memory and a long-term memory. But we've got to get them in the right place when it comes to this area of sin and forgiveness and offense. And here it is. I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can remember it. If you have a short-term memory of the goodness of God, you'll have a long-term memory for sin and offense. If you forget all that God has done for you, then you'll be able to hang on to an offense, hang on to a betrayal, hang on to hurtful things if you can't remember how much God has done for you. But if you have a long-term memory for the goodness of God, how many guys can think back of the things that God has done for you over the years and you begin to dwell on that, you begin to think about how God saved you, how God set you free, how God blessed you with a family, how God got you out of this pit, how there was a time when you were alone and all of a sudden God came and he said, I will never leave. You can just go and you can just think back over the long-term memory of the goodness of God. You'll have a short-term memory when it comes to sin and offense. Give grace. Live peace. Last thing is this. Be a David and not a Saul. Be a David, not a Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Fast forward all the way to David and Absalom. Saul has been removed king. David is now king. David is now around the same age that Saul was when he was hunting David. And David's son Absalom is around, you know, not, not exactly right, but he's, it's, it's like the situation has flip-flopped. And now David's the old king, and Absalom is the young man. And in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 13, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone from Absalom, have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, 
and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. You see, his servants were, were pushing him. You could crush this guy. You could crush this rebellion. We're at your beck and call. We are your army. We could take this guy out. Just like Saul tried to take you out. You guys see in the picture here. Now David's in the situation, the same situation that Saul was in. And here he has to make a choice. He had two choices in this moment. One, lose everything by running away. Or two, become a Saul and hang on to everything. He had two choices. Lose everything or become a Saul because he was in the position to be able to do it. And David's approach to Saul, when back when David was a young boy, he said, better he kill me than I practice his ways. It's better that, that Saul kill me than I become him. And now when he's in a position of authority and power, he decides, instead of becoming a Saul, I'm going to remain a David. I was a David as a young man. I'm going to be a David in my old age. I'm going to give grace. I'm going to live at peace. I'm going to not throw back spears. I'll lose everything before I become a Saul. You see, God didn't set David free from his Saul so he could turn around and be a Saul to his Absalom. Let me tell you, the same is true for you and I. He didn't set us free from previous situations just so we could turn around and become that very thing that we hated. See, so many times we have been oppressed or betrayed by a situation, and then we get into a position where we have the opportunity to be in control. We have the opportunity to inflict pain. We have the opportunity to set the record straight. We have the opportunity to hang on to our rights. And the question is, did God set you free from your Saul so you could now become a Saul? No. No so that you could keep being a, a David, that you could keep your joy, keep your joy. How many of you guys know I've heard it said that someone else's head is a poor place to keep your joy? And we're always worried about what other people are thinking and whatever happened to them. And, and somebody else's a, a, offense really is, another, is a horrible place to keep our joy as well. No person should ever be the source of our joy. They should never be the validation of our success or failure. They should never uh, hold that place in our life. Only God should be that. And if any of us are bound by what other people are thinking, by what other people are doing, then we've let them become our source for validation, for success or failure or for joy. Keep your joy. Listen to this. Your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. When all else fails, if you're alone in a cave, some of you guys right now, you feel like you're alone in a cave. It feels like your relationships have been cut off. If you're alone in a cave right now, your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. The next two verses after Psalm 3, when, when David was writing that about Absalom, he said, yeah, my enemies are against me and all this stuff, but the very next two verses, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. How many of you guys know you can never go wrong with a but you, O Lord statement? Put anything in front of that statement and then put a, but you, O Lord, and you'll be all right. But if you just continue to go on your psalm, the first two verses, and you never put a, but you, O Lord, in there, then you're going to be spiraling downhill. But how many of you guys know that God can, can take the downcast and he can lift it up? He can take your depression and he can be the lifter of your head. He can take what's put against you and the spears that are thrown against you and he can make them be diminished to, to be nothing. 
But you have to be willing to not throw back the spears. You have to be willing to give grace, to live peace, to keep your joy, to be who you are and not change it just because you're in a position or a circumstance. Amen? David remained David. In fact, if you look at all of chapter Psalm 63, all of Psalm 63 that was written while David was in the wilderness running away from Absalom. And some of you guys can go and read that a little bit later and you'll see, wow, how powerful. My soul longs for you. My, my, my soul thirsts for you as in a dry and, and thirsty land where there is no water. He was actually saying that because he was out there in the desert. And he says, my heart is still longing after God. Even in the midst of my desert, my heart still longs and thirsts after God. Can we stand up here as we get ready to close, have the worship team come back up? David was the same, whether he was in the, the field with the sheep as a teenager or whether he was in the desert, really, it was the same desert, the Judean desert, as a teenager, or whether he was in that same desert as an old man running away and not throwing back the spears, running away, losing it all, instead of hanging on to what he had to crush it. Your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. And I, I know this message may be targeted to some specific people here today. Maybe this doesn't apply to everybody where you're at. You might need this some later time in life. But I do know that there are people here in this room right now that this is a right now word for you. You're going through it right now. You're battling it in your heart right now. And the best thing you can do right now is to run to God because he's the only one that can be the lifter of your head. It's not going to be a circumstantial change. It's not going to be if you get proven right. That's not going to be the lifter of your head. The only place that can be the lifter of your head is when you find your strength in God apart from everyone else. Amen. And so we're going to come to this time. We're going to come to the table and to have communion. But it's more than just receiving these elements. It's like a moment. Make a moment out of this. Make this be your altar today and lay down all of those things. Lay down your spear when you come to the altar today and say, God, I, I choose to, to have you be my source and the lifter of my head. And as I receive the cup and I receive the bread, that I'm reminded of your sacrifice for me. I'm reminded of the goodness of God so I can have a short-term memory of sin or offense. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for, as I, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, he did this. He took bread. He, broke, he gave him thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. And as we come and receive at the table, lay down your spears today. Take the cup, which represents the blood that Jesus spilled for us, that he paid that ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Don't worry about somebody else's sins. Thank God that he delivered you from yours. And take that bread that, that reminds you that his body was broken for you. And that in that is healing. You realize that God is the healer of broken hearts. Not just the healer of bodies, he's the healer of broken hearts. 
And so I want you to come to the table. There's tables here and tables in the back. And you come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat during this song. At some point there with your family or just an individual, take a moment with God. Lay down your spear. Say, God, heal my heart. I'm reminded of your sacrifice. I'm reminded of your healing. And I trust that today I can walk out whole again. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you for your power, for your blood that was spilled, for your body that was broken, for healing, for victory, so that we can hold on to that palm branch even in the midst of a betrayal. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally heal hearts today. Even in this moment, as we take an act of faith and we, we literally step out of our seats and grab these elements, Lord, that you would, in the act of faith, in the act of doing, in the act of walking it out, that you would begin to heal hearts, lay down spears, and set people free. In the name of Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.